This is Pulse 95. You're listening to the Life Beats podcast. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. Assalamu alaikum. Hello, Allah, and welcome to a special edition of Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Today, my guest is an icon in the world of fashion and fine art photography. Douglas Dubler is not just an artist, but a master of his craft. Having had some of the greatest photographers and artists in history as his personal mentors, his passion and perfectionism have allowed him to produce incredible work over the last half century that has stood the test of time. Meeting him and getting an insight into his life and work was mind-blowing, full of the most amazing stories and encounters. He reveals to me the greatest lessons that he learned from the likes of Ansel Adams and how to see what others don't to create breathtaking images, the celebrity stories, plus one person that he was determined to photograph when he came here to the UAE. It actually happened. We have the details of that amazing encounter. It's such a great story. All of that and so much more next on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. 95. Keeping it local. Keeping it local. All day, every day. Pulse 95. Heart of Shasha. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. Now, Douglas Dubler is a fashion and fine art photography master who established a name for himself early on in his career in the 60s as a result of his indomitable character. Determined to learn everything he could to perfect his art, he took inspiration from some of the greatest artists and photographers in history and channeled that into his work where he demanded complete control and was known for impeccable results. I sat down with the legend when he was here for the Exposure Photography Festival and asked him where that drive and inspiration came from. My whole inspiration for my life as an artist has been Leonardo da Vinci. And when I was 17 years old, starting my career as an artist, I collected the 2,700 pages of Leonardo's notebooks and I read them for 10 years. All right. And his famous saying was, let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I am the enemy of the good. I am perfect. You know? <laughs> I know you don't like the way that sounds, but but that's what I strive for. I strive for, I'm not interested in good. I'm interested in perfection. And if you're not interested in perfection, get out of my way. Well, I can't think of a better way to start the conversation <laughs> with you. And I've had three espressos this morning, so, you know, so that helps. <laughs> Douglas Dubler, what an uh, incredible pleasure it is to have you here at Exposure. Let's start from there. You, you know, touched on a few things that I want to ask you about. You know, starting out, you actually started out as a plastic sculptor and silkscreen artist and then moved into photography. Tell us about how you found photography. I was doing sculpture and doing silkscreening and I was using photography in the silkscreening. So I got more and more enamored with photography. And as most things happen in real life, I had no plan about any of this stuff. I was in Los Angeles at the time and ran into somebody who was a famous makeup artist from New York City. Very, very famous. And he said, well, look, you should try and do this cosmetic stuff, this beauty photography. You know, you're good at doing this and do it. So why? Who was it that you ran into? David Frank Ray. So we sort of teamed up and David got me started doing this stuff. Um, As you can tell by my first comments there, I'm very convinced that my approach is the correct approach. And I'm good at convincing people about that. So I was working for a cosmetic company called Redken. Uh, they, They make hair products. I was 23 years old, and I told the creative director of the company, you have to change this whole thing. You're doing it all wrong. I said, we have to bring all the girls in from New York and all the clothes in from New York uh, because the, the fashion here in California is dreadful and the models are no good. All right? 
So she said, well, that's going to cost us a lot of money. And uh, you know, I said, do me a favor, Joan. Indulge me. Do it for three or four months. And if it's not successful, I'll never talk to you again the rest of my life. So we did this for a few months, and it was wildly successful. And in the time period that I worked for Redken, their revenue went from $5 million to $50 million. And they changed the name of the company to Redken New York. Hang and on, that was all the 23-year-old Douglas Dubler telling them what they should do. $5 million to $50 million yeah, back yeah, then yeah, is a ridiculous yeah, big, yeah, amount was, of yeah. money. And I wasn't totally responsible for that, but... I was the one that created the image for that company, and I, and I, in those days, I sacrificed my photography fee to get the money to, for the better models, because that, that's always been my paradigm, is always work with people better than yourself because then you're going to look good and you're going to learn. And I, I follow that today. I don't want to work with anybody who's not better than me. And collaboration was a big thing of Leonardo da Vinci's also. So it's something that I've done my whole life. Collaborate with good people. The the synergy and the collective energy of that gives you an end, re, end result that's better than anything that you can do by yourself. And, and if you ever talk to anybody who said that they became successful uh, by themselves, they're lying or they're not successful. Who were the most inspiring and most amazing people that you've really had some incredible training points with in your career? You've worked with so many. Well, Ansel Adams. You know, I, I spent time in the dark that, yeah. room, you know, uh, making prints with him and learned the zone system. And Ansel told me this story years ago when he was taking his famous picture of the moonrise over Hernandez and he didn't have a light meter and he had one sheet of the uh, 8x10 film left. But he knew that the moon was coming up on the horizon and he knew how many foot candles the moon had in August on the horizon and he knew the formula for converting that to f-stop and he did that quickly and he shot one picture and two seconds later the light was off the crosses so he used a quote uh, from Louis Pasteur that chance favors the prepared mind so again I heard this when I was in my 20s and I decided at that point I was never going to be in a position where I didn't have the information to take advantage of a photographic situation Situation. So I studied and studied and studied, and I, I still do. I, I spend easily 20 hours a week reading and studying and keeping up on the latest technology, and it's a, it's a never-ending uh, process. That's a, an amazing thing, hearing it from someone like you who's an icon in photography, that you are still, after the decades that you spent, and the mentors like Ansel Adams that you've had, you still, t I mean, that's a lesson in itself. If it ceases... You should quit and do something else. You know, I'll be doing it till I'm dead, you know, and, and all great artists, whether they're painters, photographers, sculptors, I was inspired for many, many years by the great Irving Penn. And, and I had the great pleasure of training some of Penn's assistants, the person who was his studio manager for 13 years, worked for me first, the person who ended up becoming the director of the Irving Penn Foundation was my assistant first. And then for the last 10 years of his life, Irving pen only made color prints on a printer that I set up and I made the profiles for. So I contributed as much as I could to, to somebody who was my idol. Just astonishing. Coming up, Douglas details his surprising first encounter with one of the greatest photographers of all time, the incomparable Ansel Adams. You're listening to Pulse95. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. It's Life Beats on Pulse 95 and I'm speaking to photography legend Douglas Dubler. And here he tells me how one of the giants of photography, Ansel Adams, became his mentor. And that's the good thing about being in New York City. You're there rubbing shoulders with the greatest people. My early mentor was Neil Barr, one of the great, great, great fashion photographers who's been a friend of mine for 50 years. And he had been an assistant to Irving Penn. I had a studio in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I would come and visit Neil periodically and, and have him critique my portfolio. And he would say, well, this isn't so good. And this is so... And I would listen and I would 
incorporate those things and come back six months later and, and he would say, well, well, you're paying attention and you're, you know, I said, well, I'm not going to waste your time. It's just like when my first encounter with Ansel Adams, he developed the zone system and that's advanced mass tr- trigonometry and then I taken that in college, but I wasn't so good at it. And he's talking to me about logarithms and everything like that. So I went back to Los Angeles and I ro- enrolled in a community college and took advanced math. And six months later, I went back to Ansel and I had this conversation. He said, where did you learn about this stuff? You know, he said, the last time I talked to you, you didn't know what you... I said, I, I went and took a, a course for, for six weeks in college. He said, nobody ever did that. I said, well, I have the pleasure of, of getting some information from one of the greatest minds in photography. I want to understand what it is that you're talking about. And if I don't understand this advanced math, then I don't understand what you're talking about. And I'm not going to waste your time. I just, that that is the attitude to have. That's incredible. How did you end up um, having Ansel Adams as a mentor? Great story. Great story. Fabulous story. A friend of mine was one of the only people that ever made color prints for Ansel Adams. And on one of his trips from Los Angeles to Carmel, he delivered a print. And he had a print of mine that I had shot. And he showed it to Ansel. And Ansel said, it's a great photograph, but a terrible print. You think your friend would be interested in learning how to make a better print? And uh, my friend came back to Los Angeles and told me that. And at 2 o'clock in the morning, I got in my car and I drove to Carmel County. Now, now Ansel didn't say come to get it, but I drove eight hours all night long taking whatever substance I needed to take to stay awake on a, on a dangerous road up in the dark, you know. And I knock at Ansel's door and he answers the door and I said, I'm the photographer. He said, well, I didn't mean for you to come here now. I said, well, and I gave him the card of the hotel, the motel that I was staying at in Carmel. I said, well, this, this is where I'm staying. I said, I'm not leaving until I hear from you, but take your time. It's okay. I said, he said, come in, come in. He said, what is wrong with you? I said, well, when the greatest photographer of the 20th century pays a compliment to me. I said, I'm just, I'm just trying to be smart here. That's all. And Ansel once said to me, Douglas, you're always the first one to get here in the morning and the last one to leave. Don't you have a life? I said, yeah, my life is here. This is my life. My girlfriend, I really don't care about her. You know, I never cared about relationships in my life. I cared about my art. Isamu Noguchi. Now tell me about that. Great. Now, I got involved with him because he liked my girlfriend. You know, that's how I met him. And I started working for him as an intern. And he would do these huge sculptures, 60-ton sculptures. We would have to install those, and it would, there would be a big crane with a, a thing to lift it. And, and uh, Isamu would, would want this 60-ton sculpture turned an inch or two this way. And the construction guys were really upset about this. So I was the interpreter, and I got the things done. So when we were installing this one piece, I said to the construction guy, I said, listen, you call your boss and you get the lights brought in here. We're going to be working at nighttime to do this. I said, because until the little guy down there says it's perfect, we're going to be working. All right. So, so I want, I want to get your boss on the phone right now. Oh, no, no, that's not necessary. I said, then you're going to cooperate. You know, you're going to do what I want you to do. So my job was always as is my personality. Just get the job done. And, and, and when I'm working for somebody like that, I'm going to get the job done. I kidnapped Noguchi and I was a, a Japanese chef at the time. Kidnapped him and I took him to my studio and I would prepare these Japanese meals for him. And Noguchi said, you know, where did you learn how to do this stuff? I said, well, you know, I study this Japanese stuff and this macrobiotics and everything. And I would sit and talk to him and I would say, Isumo, Tell me, how did you get to be the greatest sculptor of the 20th century? I said, tell me the the story. Yep, the story is uh, coming up next. Just the craziest, craziest kind of stories from Douglas Jubler. Who would think that he'd be a Japanese chef uh, uh, as well? Just unbelievable. Coming up from one icon to the next, Douglas shares the lessons that he learned from one of the greatest sculptors of the 20th century, Isamu Noguchi. Plus, he tells us about his first foray into photography, which, you know, as you might expect, includes sharks. The amazing story is next on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. 
Life Beats, Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. It's Life Beats on Pulse 95 with me, Sally Musa, and I'm in conversation with the incredible Douglas Jubler, who has lived and done some of the most amazing things with some incredible people, including one of the greatest sculptors of the 20th century, Isamu Noguchi. Here he tells me some of the lessons that he learned from Noguchi. And he also talks about his start in photography, which very much involved sharks. I kidnapped Noguchi and I was a Japanese chef at the time. I kidnapped him and I took him to my studio and I would prepare these Japanese meals for him. And Noguchi said, you know, where did you learn how to do this stuff? I said, well, you know, I studied this Japanese stuff and this macrobiotics and everything. And I would sit and talk to him and I would say, Isumo, Tell me, how did you get to be the greatest sculptor of the 20th century? I said, tell me the, the story. So it's him and me sitting on the couch. He said, I never cared about anything other than doing the work. I didn't care about fame. I didn't care about, I just cared about the work. So I hear this in my early 20s and I go, that sounds like a good formula for success. Work for this guy. So I, I took advantage of those opportunities and they changed my life. Just those little things like Ansel saying chance favors the prepared mind. These little things stuck in my mind and they became the basis for me building whatever structure I have now in my life as an artist. Absolutely. What else did you learn from Isamu? Well, he had this minimalist approach to artwork as a photographer. Very good question because it relates to Noguchi. For me, photography is the art of exclusion, not inclusion. I'm not interested in telling stories. You know, let somebody else tell the stories. Let the photojournalist tell the stories. I don't care about telling stories. I care about making images and and composing that frame into just the elements that are essential to make that story, whether it's a beauty shot or an abstract shot or a picture of the flowers that you see that, that I've done, they all have that same thing in common. They all have a minimalist approach to them, and they all have uh, my method of organizing elements in the composition. For me, if, if the element doesn't contribute and do something to the composition, I crop it out. You know, I get rid of it. So, um, again, for me, photography is the art of exclusion, not inclusion. You've done almost every kind of photography that we can think of, um, which is amazing. So, And then you moved on to beauty photography from there. But what was that like, underwater photography for you? That's how I started out my career because I was a diver and I, and I, and I went to live in these underwater habitats for two weeks at a time and not coming up for air two, two weeks at a time. And then I was... I participated. Really? I, I participated in a series of studies to determine man's adaptability to a marine environment. So I would be down in this environment 60 feet under the water and the psychologist and the physiologists were taking brain patterns and heart every periodically determine how this was affecting my ability and I, I, I didn't have a problem with it at all some of the Navy divers had a problem with it because of their mentality I guess or something like that but uh, I liked doing that so I, I continued doing that and I was doing shark behavioral research in Australia working with the uh, uh, Scripps Institute in La Jolla. So I'm in the water with these great white sharks. And one of my passions in life has been spearfishing. I was a competitive spearfisherman when I was younger, and I had some world records in, in, in fish. And I did this a lot in, in Bermuda. So, Some of your favorite photos that you've taken underwater? Um, I work with Eugenie Clark, the shark scientist in Mexico who discovered that sharks sleep at, at nighttime. So I, I did things. I was just fascinated with all of the detail. And what's always fascinating me about the underwater world is that it's it's just a few feet under the water, and most humans have no idea what exists there. The life forms that you know bridge the gap between plant and animal. And when you go into the ocean, it's always a great adventure. You never know what it is. 
is that you're going to see. And, you know, I've been attacked by sharks many times. I've been in, in, in some very deep water, 6,000 feet of water, shooting fish and been surrounded by 12 or 13 sharks at one time. And the sharks are biting the back of my ne- neck and biting on my fins and everything like this. And uh, it all lends to your, the layering and development of your sensory perception and your how you see the world. So all of these things, you know, I, I say to people all the, all the time, as an artist, you know, I look at my life as sort of the layers in an onion. And the, the, the bigger the onion grows, the more layers you have there. So when I'm trying to create a, a photograph, I can peel back all of those layers and reach for something that I did 30 years ago or 35. And I do it all the time. I, I, you know, I, I somewhat have the curse of being 25 or 35 years ahead of my time. I invented UV photography and fashion photography in the 80s you know working for three months in the dark because the the uv you can't take a light reading it doesn't show up on polaroid and you have to work in the dark and the equipment i was inventing the equipment to do it and these glass filters would shatter and go into a million pieces and we had to put plexiglass between that and the model or she would have glass all over her face and you know so I, i did this for three months and i had to use a lens that was made out of quartz not glass because quartz passes ultraviolet light and doesn't pass visible light. So I had to do all of the science on the front end of that to learn about what I was doing and then make those pictures and and, and there's one of them in my in my booth there, one of these UV pictures from, from the 80s and somebody was looking at the at the other day and they said, we, we can't believe this is from 1980, you know, 1984. It looks like it was done yesterday. I said, well, you know, that's been one of my efforts also with my photography is to not have it be dated. I think if you have a good concept and good execution, that photography can be a timeless medium. And that is something he has definitely mastered. Douglas talks next about why and how he decided to take creative control in his process. That's coming up on Life Beats on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. Life beats. Life beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. Now, Douglas Jubler is an artist with a vision that demands perfection. Here, he tells me why it was important for him to take creative control. Plus, he talks about his favorite place in the world to work. How did you kind of develop that eye where, against what everybody else, who thought they knew what they were doing, you knew what would work. It just came from experience. One thing led to another thing. I did a a big fashion job in New York City in early 2000, which was financed by Bernard Arnault, who put $360 million behind this project. And I was the creative director. So an important distinction here is that in 1984, I became a creative director. And I only did jobs that I did the creative on. I stopped doing photography jobs for advertising agencies where they wanted to art direct me. Because I saw too many of my jobs ruined by bad art direction. And and I wasn't interested in commercial success. I was interested in doing a better job. I was always interested in moving on the ladder vertically, not horizontally. I didn't have time to move horizontally. I didn't want to waste my time. So so I figured by taking control over the creative and managing all aspects of that, if I was right, I would get further. If I was wrong, I wouldn't, but it worked. I, I had been told a story when I was young of Helmut Newton did some covers for French Vogue, and he took them one transparency, and the French were yelling and screaming, well, where is the rest of the film? You know, And Helmut said, how many are you going to use on the cover? They said, one. He said, well, here it is. So I like that story. So I was doing covers in, in California for a magazine of a celebrity, and I took them one transparency and he started yelling and screaming at me. And I told him the story about Helmut Newton. And he said, well, you're not Helmut Newton. I said, well, how do you think I'm going to get to be Helmut Newton? I said, I'm going to start with you. 
I said, and the guy said, well, this is the last time that you'll ever do a cover for me. I said, that's okay. I just need, this is true. It happened. You're the, you're the guinea pig, and I'm going to use that going forward. So, uh, and I never did another cover for the magazine. It was a well-known magazine that ended up going out of business, and I'm still in business. So I don't know. You know, there's some justice to that. Mm-hmm. So for me, as I look back upon it, the most important aspect was to have control over my life and to make those decisions and to structure my life in a way that suited my personality. I was a beauty and fashion photographer because I don't like to get up early in the morning and I don't like to start work before 11 o'clock. So the hair and makeup people got there at 9 o'clock and they were working and I would come in and I had a really good staff of people working for me and we would shoot one or two Polaroids and we would shoot two cosmetic ads, two shots in the day and get $40,000 in 1980 for a day. And that was a good, you know, and that went on for a number of years. So, you know, I was in the golden age of photography when there were budgets to do this stuff. There's no budgets to do any of that anymore. When I was doing this thing for Bernard Arnault, we'd have two or three of these supermodels that were getting $85,000 a day. That's $240,000 just for the just for the models. In that year and a half, I was responsible for $7 million in model fees, just model fees. So if, if you don't have that kind of money and that kind of budget to produce things, you're never going to get where I'm, I, I got because I had all of that money behind me. And I had I figured out that it was costing $9,000 a minute for the models. So I hired 10 assistants because they're $300 a day. So, uh, you know, for $3,000 I can have people who save me that $9,000 a minute by having everything all set up. I had three lights setting things all set up, and I moved very, very quick. So I was a really good producer and producing when there were big budgets at stake, hundreds of thousands of dollars. No young kid can do anything like that. They just don't have the experience, and they don't. And I have a producer who's with me today, Steve, who's been doing this with me for 35 years. So he lines up all of these things, and we do a good job. And I and I, and I would say to people all the time, all I want from you is a check. I don't want your opinion. Don't talk to me about whether you like the models or not. You know, you don't know anything about models. I don't tell you how to run your accounting. I don't know anything about accounting, you know, what makes money. I know about the girls. Don't tell me who the good girl is. I'm going to make all the decisions. And if you don't like it, you don't have to work with me again. But today, it's my day. I get to do it the way I want to do it. So not, not a good attitude to have financially. I don't recommend this to anybody who's starting out. But it just happened to be the path that I was going down. But that's the thing as well. You bring up a good point that they needed to trust you and to trust your art and that you knew exactly what you were doing. Well, I had a pretty good idea of it and I knew knew one thing. And here's a good example. When I would work in Italy, I became addicted to to working in Italy because in Italy, as an artist, you're a god. And if you're a good photographer, I had a permanent suite in the Hotel Diana and I was working for Gianfranco Ferre and he made me 10 custom-made suits I do was doing his photography and all of my suits were hanging up in the locker in my garden apartment in Milan and they and the magazines paid for that full time I didn't I would go back to New York and I left all my clothes there and I would be coming back to Milan I would call them up and say I'm going to be there on Tuesday send out all the clothes to get them dry cleaned and the shirts to get pressed and and this is the way life was in Milan in those days I had the good fortune my, my cousin was a very very famous shoe designer Andrea Fister and he introduced me to all the art director uh, all the editors of all the magazines and I started doing magazine covers right away and I decided another an interesting thing I didn't want to do the inside pictures in the magazines I just wanted to do the covers no editorial so, no I don't want I, I don't want because only I, I decided people just look at the cover they don't care about what's the inside of thing so I, I went rather than spend three days doing inside editorial I was doing covers for other magazines so there were 70 or 80 magazines in, in Milano and I was doing covers for all of them so I, I, I'm one of the five a few photographers alive who has shot more covers than I've shot inside editorial. Most photographers, they, they maybe get a cover and they do 30 pages inside editorial. I ju- maybe I've done 100 pages of inside editorial, maybe 200 or 300, I don't know, not many compared to the, a 40-year career, but I was just interested in those magazine covers because the mag- I was crazy like a fox. The magazine covers are the things that got me the cosmetic advertising, which is where I made money. The Italians, I, I, 
I remember the first time I did the cover and I went to see the editor there with the, the film and she said well edit the film and bring us the pictures that you like I said you really you want me to and, I, and, and, and she said well before the shoot I, she, I said well what would you like she goes well do whatever you want to do I said really I get to pick the model and I get to do and so I did all of this and it was a big success and so I come back to New York City and I told all my clients there's a new way of doing th things it's my way not your way you know so I'm not interested in doing I didn't need to have that encouragement from the Italians but they get and so I spent three months a year in Italy because I didn't want to work for the Americans and but at the same time the Americans loved what I was doing in Italy that's what they wanted me to do that I said you know what you got to do you got to get out of my hair you got to leave me alone because the Italians they say edit the film and give me 15 transparencies and I would shoot a thousand transparencies and edit them I had a light box in the hotel room and everything like that you know uh, so Life was good, and uh, you know, I, I made I, I made decisions that were right for me as an artist. I sort of figured I had the good fortune of having some contact with Joseph Campbell when I was younger, also who said, "Follow your bliss." You know, a great, great, great uh, mythologist, and uh, he said, "If you do something that you really love." You have to be successful at it because it's just a byproduct of human endeavor that if you focus your energy and your, you will get good at doing something. Now, it doesn't mean that you necessarily make a lot of money because there's a lot of things that control that. But I was never motivated for that. There were years in New York City where I made over a million dollars. That was a lot of money for a photographer in those years. But I wasn't happy making the million uh, million dollars. So I stopped doing that volume stuff. You know, and I scaled things back. Uh, you know, I was—I've never been greedy in my life. I don't need a Rolls Royce and, and expensive houses and everything like that. For me, a more important aspect of is have control over the time in my life. And for me, the most important thing is I—I I, I do a job. And I'm interested in what the photograph looks like. You know, I want it to look good. I'm going to show you a picture here. Uh, I did this two days ago at the at the hotel. And then this is a good example of this see the unseen thing. I, mm -hmm. I show people this that that are in the hotel room, and they go, "Where did you take that picture?" Yes, he does do quite a bit of incredible photography. He did lots of it here in Sharjah. And coming up, Douglas shows me how he sees the things that other people miss to create unforgettable images. Plus, he reveals the one person that he was determined to photograph while here in the UAE. More to come on Life Beats next on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. 95. Keeping it local. Keeping it local. All day, every day. Pulse 95. Heart of Shasha. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. 95. Yes, Sabah al It is the second hour of Life Beats. Uh, our special with Douglas Jubler as he talks celebrity stories. And he tells us which Oscar-winning actress was his favorite to photograph. The supermodel who left his photo shoot with fangs for teeth. Yes, this really happened. Uh, there's another story with a snake. He's not one to shy away from wild animals, clearly. Plus, he talks about the one person that he was inspired to photograph while he was here in Sharjah in the UAE. We will tell you who that was and have the details of that special encounter next on Life Beats on Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. <laughs> Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. I'm in the conversation with Douglas Jubler, a master of fine art and fashion photography, an incredible character with an insatiable hunger for creativity and perfection. He's someone who's worked with some of the greatest artists of the 20th century, including Ansel Adams, Isamu Noguchi, and Irving Penn. Drawing his first inspiration from none other than Leonardo da Vinci. And one of Douglas's talents is seeing breathtaking images that others don't. And here he shares with me the story of one stunning photo that he took here in Sharjah 
It looks like warriors walking into the horizon, into battle. But actually, it was something completely different. That is beautiful. What is that? Where is that? It's the infinity pool at the Sheraton Hotel. And these are these folded You're umbrellas. In yeah, in charge. And they look like figures. They look like warriors or something like this. And I've got this raven flying through it just and it's at six fifteen in the morning. You 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 have to be in the right place at the right time with the right light. And 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 I'm not supposed to be able to take this picture because I'm a beauty photographer. No, I'm a photographer. I see light. I see the unseen. So I, I showed this to a photographer friend of mine, one of the other photographers and he said where did you do that i said right outside at the pool he said no i i never saw anything like that i said you weren't there at the right time or at the right place and we made this as a, as a big print in my class the other day. this is ethereal yeah this is like yeah. otherworldly yeah these are the umbrellas yeah but yeah. it looks like yeah. figures they that are walking like into... They, they, yes. look, they, look, they look like soldiers. So I'm always looking for the abstract and something. And this couldn't be a better example. That's and I did it two days ago. And, and, and in my printing class, that, that I said to the people, I said, I did this at 6.30 this morning. In fact, when I was showing it to the photographer, he said, you did this today and you went and processed it and did it. I said, of course. I'm a photographer. I do the whole thing right then and there. I don't wait five seconds to do something. I take the pictures. I download it. I process it. And there's a print already 40 inches by 26 inches that we printed yesterday in the class of that. So, that And so you should beautiful. see it as a print. You can't tell on right. this iPhone thing. It's right. a print. It's spectacular. I'm going to be printing it today at the Tanui booth. The thing that I learned from Ansel is always that my legacy is going to be a print. So that's been another one of my mantras. It's all about the print. So I've pursued, and, and that's what my exhibition booth is all about. You'll see the first print in there is one of these platinum prints, which is the most esoteric form of printing in the history of photography. And that print lasts a thousand years. Platinum is that you can pour hydrochloric acid on platinum and it will destroy the paper, but not the platinum. So that booth is all about the history of printing. Platinum prints, 20 by 24 Polaroids, my ex crazy digital uh, prints. I'm the only one here that made their own prints. And I shipped them over to Simon, all, all done, because... I don't want anybody making my prints. <laughs> you know, it's the print is the ultimate expression of the art form of photography. And if you don't do your own prints, you're not a photographer. Oh Ansel God. always said the best photographers are always the best printers. And he said the job is not finished until you make a print. And so he impressed this upon me, you know, 50 years ago, and I never forgot it. So even so. in the digital age. Yeah. When everything is now digital. Yeah, yeah. The print is yeah, still the print, ultimate thing. That is, that is my legacy as a photographer. Mm -hmm. These digital files are going to disappear. The technology is going to change from this iPhone from year to year and everything like that. But that print will never change, mm -hmm. you know. And, and there's a methodology to making great fine art prints that evolves with the technology and I keep up on all of that technology so I say today a statement I make in these courses that I teach is that I make the best prints now in the history of photography and people go oh what a conceited guy you know and but I define best by keys on my definition the most accurate reproduction of what the original is and when you look at that file on the computer and when you look at the print that comes out of the print they're exact matches and and that's my understanding of the technology and my use of that technology to give me that when I shot transparencies and I had a print made it never looked like the transparency mm -hmm. because analog had it was impossible to do that you went too many generations away with internegatives and this and that and then the guy who's making the prints for me at the lab in new york city is an overworked guy from india that isn't paid enough money and he's deciding what color my picture should look at two o'clock in the morning and i'm not there mm -hmm. so i would have prints done three or four times and accept them because i just didn't couldn't spend any more time going back to look at these tests so when digital printing came about and i got involved with epsom 
the prints were terrible. They were looked ugly. But I saw that this was the history. So when I got in, the, the, this was going to be the future of photography, not the history, the future. And I got involved with that at a very early point, and I was a consultant helping them develop that uh, that technology. And I got the printers before they came out on the market for a year and a half, and I got to experiment with them. And I worked with X-Rite, which I still work, as a, a consultant developing the color management software and hardware. That determines what colors look like. So I have I have all of this stuff from X-Rite, and I have the printers from Epson, and I marry these things together so I can make something that nobody else can make because I have access to technology that's not on the market. Coming up, Douglas tells us which Oscar-winning actress is his favorite that he's ever photographed. That's next on Life Beats on Pulse 95. This is Pulse 95. is Pulse 95. Life Beats. Life Beats. With Sally Musa. Only on Pulse 95. Welcome back to Life Beats on Pulse 95. Now, Douglas Dubler is not just a creative master, but someone who leads the technology behind photography. So I had to ask him about uh, whether he takes photos with his phone or not. Uh, plus something else that I had to ask him is, who's been his favorite person to photograph so far. Douglas, you've seen uh, some of the biggest changes in technology when it comes to photography. What about, you know, we use phones all the time now for photography. How has that changed? I use phones to make phone calls. You don't use your phone for photography. No, I don't. I don't take this. This is to have telephone conversations. Yeah. This is not a camera. You don't like the idea. No, I don't like anything about this. As a camera, what you're actually holding right now is a mirrorless yes, camera. Th- th- this is this is my toy camera here, right? But this is this is a, a two thousand dollar lens on the toy camera, yeah. right? So this is the eighty five one point four of Sony, a, a very good lens. The most important thing is the lens on the camera. So this is for telephone calls. Yeah, and this is not for t- photography. You know, that's my opinion. But I'm an old guy, and I'm going to be dead soon. You know, right, nobody so. cares about what I say. You have, of course, uh, over the course of your career, and still to this day. You're photographing celebrities, some of the most well-known names. Who have been your favorite people to photograph? Elizabeth Taylor, period. And I have photographed Elizabeth Taylor when she was 40 years old, after she did that national velvet thing. The most beautiful woman. And and when I photographed Elizabeth Taylor, she was wearing the Hope Diamond. I said, Liz, you, 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 you're not afraid? Because I, I, I have it to wear. I'm not going to keep it in a safe somewhere. That's a real movie star. I photograph real movie stars. She comes to, but many other fabulous ones. Not what's going on today with these, you know, somebody called me up. Did you want to photograph Paris Hilton? I said, no. And I, I want nothing to do with the Kardashian, you know, uh, girls at all. I, I this is radio, so I can't really tell you how I feel about uh, them. But I, I'm not interested in that aesthetic, you know. I, my mentor, Neil Barr, had done the last photographs of Marlena Dietrich. I wish I was alive to have done that. I wish I was a little bit older and I'd had chance to photograph Marilyn Monroe. You don't have these kind of people anymore, you know. Now you have celebrities that are created by pop culture and photographers that are created by the pop culture too and this obsession with social media. You know, I I got 5,000 followers and I'm nothing. You know, I, I don't care about that social media. My value as a photographer to these companies used to be based upon the kind of images I create. That image that I showed you, that's what I'm interested in. I'm not interested that 60,000 people saw that and liked it. I would I would be disappointed if they did like it because that opinion doesn't mean anything to me. My, my good friend Steve McCurry puts likes on my picture. I'm interested that Steve likes it. Steve and my other friend Stephen Wilkes, they put likes on my pictures immediately when I put them. You know what? I just need two guys. Those two guys. Uh, I'm not interested in an audience of 150,000, you know, and I had the good fortune of having relationships with some of the best photographers in the history of uh, of photography. Steve is one of them. I'm interested in those kinds of opinions and those kind of people, so. Absolutely. So still from, you know, those who we know, the, the celebrities that you've photographed, who's been the most surprising to you that you worked with? 
I remember you know years ago when and this goes back many years when I was doing this Dallas TV show and I had all of these Linda Evans and Joan Collins and it was a big deal and you know a, a famous thing and well, well let's talk about Brooke Shields hmm. so I photographed Brooke Shields when she was 14 years old she was a great, great beauty. And I spent $3,500 retouching a 14-year-old uh, because I wanted her to look uh, a certain way. And that picture was her favorite picture for a decade or something like that. And she did a, uh, uh, a shooting with Richard Avedon and, and she mentioned my name to Richard Avedon and I met Avedon at a party sometime later in New York City. He goes, oh, you're this photographer that Brooke Shields thinks yours is the best thing. And like he had like this bad attitude with me. And I said, you're Richard Avedon. I'm a little like aunt. Why do you care about me? I said, you should have a better attitude. So I read him the riot act, Richard Avedon, you know. Many people wouldn't do that. I, I, I didn't care. I said, well, why, why are you threatened by me? I'm never threatened by anybody. I give everybody all of the information. You ask me how I do something, I'm going to tell you because I know you're never going to do it the way I do it. So, and photographers are very insecure. I, I got a little bit of it here already. You know, somebody's jealous of how many prints I have in my boot. You know, you know get over it. I, I, and I say to them, you know what the, the thing that you have to worry about? How good your next picture is. That's it. It should begin there and end there. Don't worry about the PR. Don't worry about what anybody else says. You worry about satisfying an audience of one yourself. And if you like that, you know, that should be where it begins and ends. And that's where it begins and ends for me. Coming up, we finally find out who Douglas Jubler was inspired to photograph here in the UAE. Keep it here to find out all the details on Life Beats on Pulse 95. Pulse 95. You're listening to Pulse 95. Pulse 95. It's Pulse 95. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. Now, some of the world's biggest celebrities, including Jerry Hall, Mick Jagger, Brooke Shields and Elizabeth Taylor, have been immortalized by Douglas Dubler. But when he came to the Exposure Photography Festival here in Sharjah, he had his sights set on one man in particular. Somebody who's alive today who you'd still like to photograph. We've talked about the ones that you've missed in the past. Who would you like to photograph today? Uh... While I'm here, I want to do that, that guy who's the, the, the head of the Sharjah media thing, the very handsome uh, uh, sheikh. I, I forget it. I don't know his name, but you know who it is. Sheikh Sultan bin Ahmed? Yeah. yeah. The, the, I, I was sitting next to him just a little while ago, and they, and they were very shocked that he would sit next to me. You know, I said, you like my shoes? I got, you know, I, you know great, great guy. We didn't, we didn't talk, but I was impressed by his energy and everything. And I looked at him. I said, you know, that's a great guy. So I'm trying trying to do a portrait of him before I live here. You know, I, I, I just look at people and I sense their energy and I think, oh, well, I can do something that's kind of interesting and I do my see the unseen thing. So while I'm here, that's who I want to. So we'll see. I'm so excited to see that. Oh, my yeah, gosh. Yeah. Okay. So in your incredible experience, what makes an iconic image? That's a, a difficult term to define because what's iconic to one person isn't necessarily it's a term that's used very freely i think too freely but for me it, it has to do with the lighting and the composition and the connection of the subject to the camera i spent a lot of time talking to the models i did a a, a photograph that was supposed to be a representation of eve in the garden of eden, eden after she had taken a bite out of the apple and um I interviewed 300 models to find a model to do this, uh, and I wanted to find somebody who was comfortable with uh, uh, with having a snake wrapped around them. And everybody lied to me because they wanted the money, you know. And I, I met this one Russian girl who came to see me with uh, a picture of her and her family in Russia with a big snake wrapped around them. That was the portrait, that, and she and it was a real picture. It wasn't Photoshop or anything like that. I said, okay, so this is the girl that I'm going to do this with. So we spent 13 hours doing this picture with the snake with Nadia. Uh, I said, okay, so I want this to look like Mona Lisa, and I want you to have this all-knowing, all wisdom and confidence and everything. I don't want you to look through the camera just like the Mona Lisa is looking. 
So I spend a lot of time talking about the psychology of what I'm going to do with the model, and that's why this picture looks like that. You know, and this is a live snake that's moving around all over her. And every two seconds, the snake is out of the frame, and the handler has to come there and put the snake in front of her. And when he does that, the snake squeezes her around the waist. All right, every two seconds. She did that for 13 hours. And you look at her face. There's absolutely no awareness that there's a live snake on her body. This is not easy to capture. You know? <laughs> so, so, uh, so. This is unbelievable. So that's 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 my the, Mona Lisa. Her, her look is, yeah. com- is, it, is one is of fab- completely like. This yeah. is so normal yeah, to have yeah, the snake yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, and she's just and she's got this enigmatic look on her face and this wisdom. So it, again, it's 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 the communication and the story when I say I don't want to tell a story I don't mean that literally I just mean and you can see it's a very minimalist picture you know it's got magenta and green when you put magenta and green those are complementary opposites and your eye can't focus on either one of them when both of them are in the picture at the same time so I put that little magenta accent in there to create that sense of, uh, of dimension there and uh, it's a hundred thousand dollar production. That picture. It wasn't fifty bucks. You know. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. So, so anyway, that so, is beautiful. So I, I, I'm I'm interested in what that picture looks like. To me, these pictures are my children. This is my family. I got a big family. I got a half a million transparencies. I'm like the the spider that gives birth to this huge brood of spiders. Well, not all of them are going to live, you know, but, you know, a few of them will live. But I, I'll have a half a million babies, you know, and maybe 20,000 of them will live, you know. But anyway. Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. So uh, we just got a, an insight into your process of working, which is fair. What did you say, interestingly, to, you know, Brooke Shields that produced, like, her favorite image? How did you talk to her? Interesting story. She's her mother's there, who's the stage mother, influencing her communication. So I did a really rude thing. There, I have big, uh, ten by twelve foot black flat on wheels. I rolled it in front of her mother, so she was blocked from the vision uh, of, of her daughter because she announced to her daughter, she said, "I think we're finished. We've done an, uh, enough now." And I went to her and, and I said, "I'll tell you when you're finished." I said, and you're not anywhere close to being finished. I said, so Terry, you just chill out here. And and of course, I was foolish enough to give an interview to the Hollywood Reporter, and I told them this story, and they published it in the newspaper. You know, but anyway. So, getting back to your more direct question, so I went to Brooke. Now I said, so you more comfortable now? She goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's good. So, uh, me putting that screen between her and her mother that opened up a window, and I was able to get some good communication, and I got this great picture, and uh, you know, it's. It's about the chemistry. It's the it's the connection between you and the person, you know. And 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 uh, uh, and the more experience you get doing that, the better you get at uh, at getting that. I'm looking for that reaction. What so. was the the image for? Was it, it was for a cover magazine cover? A magazine yeah, cover. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite magazine cover? He's going to be telling us uh, next his favorite magazine cover. But I think really he's got a thing for wild animals. Unbelievable. He did get that photo of Sheikh Sultan bin Ahmed Al-Qasimi. We're going to be sharing the remarkable photo on our social media for Pulse95 Radio. Uh, But coming up next, find out which supermodel left Douglas's shoot with fangs on, creating one of the most unforgettable images. That's next on Life Beats with me, Sally Musa. Life Beats. Life Beats with Sally Musa only on Pulse 95. 95. Such a great conversation with the incredible Douglas Dubler, and he's full of amazing stories from his shoots, including one about a supermodel who had to leave his shoot with silver fangs on. What's your favorite magazine cover? The cover I did with uh, uh, Jerry Hall for Italian Vogue. I shot her with Mick Jagger. I mean, how, how much how much better does it get? You know, Jerry Hall, the great beauty. This black and white. I did a black, great black and white image and had it retouched to death, and she looked fabulous. And Mick Jagger's, you know, playing a harmonica in the studio, and you know, it's, it, it was it was great. You know, it was the golden age of photography. You know, you, you know, Iman. Can I tell you a story about this? This is a very good story. Okay, so you see, she has silver fangs there. Yes. So so those those aren't just some kind of fake thing. I took mold 
molds of her teeth from a dentist, and I had a, a jeweler make those fangs out of sterling silver, and I cemented them into her mouth with dental cement. Only we used too strong of the dental cement, so when we got finished, we couldn't get the teeth out of her mouth, and she had to leave the studio like that. So this was, and uh, so, and, and I projected that cross on her face with light. That's me doing that with light. There's no Photoshop in this. This was it before. wasn't drawn on. This 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 is 1985. Wow. So uh, and it was a picture. It that, looks like you could have shot that today. Yeah, and that's that's that, that's a, a, a thing about it is that if it's a good picture and executed well, uh, I mean you, you really can't date that eye makeup. That could have been done today, you know, and if, and great nail great nails and great nail color and and good camera angle and good lighting and everything like that so a good picture even if it's a a fashion picture should be timeless this is yeah. this is a great picture it was a great story she left she and the great thing about it was that when we were doing the picture she couldn't talk because she had these fangs and so you know i work with some really good people who later on appreciated the picture maybe not during the the process there okay but you've done everything, every kind of photography, your favorite genre of photography. I like that picture I did at the Sheraton yesterday. It, it changes. I'm inspired by being alive and my vision on that day. I say, you know, wait till tomorrow. The, picture, the pictures are going to get better and better and better. The more you take the pictures, that's what I tell everybody. You know, people that start out being photographers, they go, oh, you know, well, how will we get... I said, you know, start taking pictures and give yourself a decade. And then, and then look, don't, don't, everybody, I want to be a photographer in six months. You know, you know, forget about that. You know, every, all of my friends who are successful artists, regardless, have one thing in common. They've been doing their thing for decades, not two years, not three years, decades. When you get all of that experience behind you, you get better at what you're doing. It, we don't have an appreciation for that in this world, in this culture, and everybody wants something to happen really, really quick, and it, yeah. it takes time. Absolutely. And in terms of, you've talked about your favorite photo, or some of them, um, your favorite photo from, from other photographers, or another photographer. Do you have one, or do you have a couple? My, my favorite, if I had to pick one person, it would be Irving Penn. And if I had to pick one picture, it would be the two little children in Cusco, you know, standing in front of the table, you know, uh, that he did in, in Cusco in Peru. There are so many good photographs from Penn. Penn has been, you know, certainly some, a, a, an inspiration for me, and also Albert Watson, and my mentor, Neil Barr. And I always say to somebody, if you're going to copy somebody, copy somebody good. Don't copy somebody bad, you know, and let that be an inspiration for you and then try and take that inspiration and take it to a different place, your place. To find your own voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And photography. And that, ta and that takes decades to find your, and that's the problem. Nobody wants to put the time in to develop that point of view. That point of view is the thing that differentiates you from everybody else. If you look at my pictures, they have a point of view. It can be that picture at the Sheraton, or it can be a beauty of that. It's my way of looking at the world. And some people are perceptive enough to see that, whether it's an abstract picture or a beauty picture or a ballet picture or something. They go, you know, friends of mine have said, they all look the same. They all have your point of view. You know, they have so, your signature. Yeah, yeah. So, and it changes all the time too. So, you know, my point of view today is not what it was 35 years ago, and it's not going to be what it is tomorrow. Mm. What are you excited for now? I want to get the shake, the guy, the guy that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to do his. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just whatever it is that I see that I get excited about. You just know? you're very yeah. much in the moment. You're yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You're not yeah. thinking, okay, ten years from now. No, 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 no. If I'm inspired by it, you know, whatever inspires me. My goodness, my goodness. I just hope we we continue to see incredible images coming from you, Douglas Dubler. As long as I'm alive. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, oh my Hopefully. gosh, what an absolute pleasure. And you're here with your signature hat. Yes. Amazing. Your look is just yes. something else. I love it. Um, thank you. It really is amazing uh, to see the man uh, in the flesh. He really does have a look of his own and just such a great conversation. 
with the amazing Douglas Dubler. He is, of course, the master of fine art and fashion photography. He was here for Exposure, the International Photography Festival, showcasing a fantastic body of work in his exhibition, including that infamous photo of Iman. It was there. And yes, he did get to photograph Sheikh Sultan bin Ahmed al-Qasimi. Talking about the details of the shoot afterwards, he said that he chose to do the portrait outside where there was available light, uh, taking advantage of the soft diffuse light at the end of the day. They did it actually 500 metres from Sharjah Expo Centre on the beach. Uh, So within minutes, they just had the ideal location. They held up a reflector around 5pm. The the shot was taken. Um, And on his camera, he closed down to an f 2.8 stop to give him adequate depth of field but still render the background with a soft painterly quality we're going to show you the photo it's going to be up on our social media it's amazing because uh, he said to Sheikh Sultan that he needed 15 to 20 minutes Uh, he ended up doing 21 photos within seven minutes finished it all, got it all done, absolutely amazing. And the photo itself has such a beautiful, intimate quality about it. The way that he captured it, the way that it was just very penetrating. There's a a beautiful connection and humanity in that photo when you see it. And it really does showcase Douglas Jubler's incredible mastery and artistry in his craft that he is able to connect in such a short period of time with his subject and create something truly extraordinary. Amazing to speak to this man. And we will definitely have this interview up on our podcast. So do make sure that you do uh, subscribe to Life Beats on Apple Podcasts and on SoundCloud as well. And you can hear that story back. That's it for us here on Life Beats on Pulse 95. We're going to be back with you again tomorrow from 10 a.m. Have a fantastic day. This is Pulse 95. Tune in live every weekday from 10 a.m.